Good morning. Um, it is a joy to be here with you um, at Fellowship Church this Sunday. Um, as Pastor Hunter said, I do have a, a long-standing connection here to Fellowship Church, even though it's never been my home church. Um, my grandparents, Bill and Helen Heater, I believe, helped build this building um, 300 years ago or something, a while ago. Um, and my Father and aunts and others, my relatives attended here, and my father and mother actually met here, which is pretty important to my history. Um, so I have a, a long-standing connection here to Fellowship Church, and it is a pleasure to be back, and it's a pleasure to be one of the missionaries that you guys support so generously, um, to have the privilege of going, representing you as a congregation, doing the work of the Lord in Northern Ireland. Um, so that is a pleasure and a privilege. Um, I do want to apologize a bit for my voice today. I'm getting over a cold and starting to lose my voice. It's not an Irish accent, um, but I will do my best to keep it um, audible and understandable. Um, so I'm really glad to be able to share with you here this morning um, for a couple of minutes about the work that God has called myself and my wife, Rachel. She's not with me here today. She's still back home in Northern Ireland. Um, I'm going to share a bit about the work that he's called us to over there, what that looks like um, serving in a European context in Northern Ireland. Um, and specific roles and opportunities that God has presented there. Um, and then, as I finish that, I want to share for just a few minutes from God's Word from the book of Colossians, um, something that I hope will be encouraging and challenging to you and to me as well. Um, so I do want to thank you as a congregation, and particularly to Pastor Hunter and Noel and the rest of the missions committee for the opportunity to come and speak. Um, it, is, it is very good to be here, um, but also to thank you for your support and your prayer um, throughout the past couple of years. I know from my own perspective, from being in a church that supports missionaries, and you hear occasionally a couple times a year what they're doing, and you send support, you pray for them, or that sort of thing. Um, it feels a bit disconnected at times. Um, I just want to assure you that your support and your prayer and your giving uh, is an integral part of our ministry. We literally can't be there without God providing for us through you and our other supporters. Um, so every young person I sit down with, every community that I go in with, knock doors and share the gospel, um, every group of young people that I get up in front of and, and teach to or train, you guys are a part of that work that God is doing. You may not feel like it, you may not remember that, but you are part of what God is doing there. I'm very grateful um, from both Rachel and I for your support in that way. So I want to take a few minutes here and look um, at Northern Ireland and the work that we are doing there. Um, See if this works. You told me to turn it on? It works now. Amazing. Um, 35, but I'm like 90 with technology. So, going from there. So, I work in Northern Ireland. Um, as you can probably put together from the name, it is a country that is in the north of the island of Ireland, um, but in a very unique way. It's not part of Ireland. It's part of the United Kingdom, but it's not part of Great Britain. It's in Europe, but it's not part of the European Union. You got all that? Great. Cool. Um, it is a, a relatively small country. It's about the size of Connecticut um, and has about 2 million people that live in Northern Ireland. It's pretty tiny, smaller than the Philly metro area, um, not very large, most of it very rural. Almost a third of the people live within about six miles of the capital city of Belfast. Um, out of those 1.9 million people, 
only about four to four and a half percent of them are thought to be evangelical Christians. Despite this being a country with a very rich Christian heritage, um, there are more churches per person in Northern Ireland than anywhere else in the world. 95 out of every 100 people currently do not know the Lord as their Savior. So it's a, a country with a very rich heritage of Christian faith, but very, very dark spiritually. Um, Northern Ireland has been kind of swamped and covered by the, the post-Christian secularism that has swept most of Europe and is, is developing here as well, I believe. Um, and the general outlook on the gospel and on Christ in Northern Ireland ranges from a kind of apathy where people have grown up in the church or they were baptized when they were children, or maybe they go Christmas and Easter and they really just don't think there's anything else for them. In the faith, they think they're good with God. Um, they don't really think there's much else. and They don't have much interest in the gospel. They don't have much interest in church. Um, to kind of on the far side, there's areas of it and people there that are fairly aggressively opposed to the gospel or to anything religious at all. Um, in parts of Northern Ireland, I'll talk about this in just a moment, parts of Northern Ireland that are predominantly Catholic, um, there are whole towns, 20, 30,000 people, that essentially have no gospel witness living and dwelling there in that town. It's not uncommon to go into some of the, the housing estates or the developments there and spend a day talking to children, knocking on doors, talking to people, and there, most of the people in those estates have never even seen a Bible or heard the gospel clearly presented to them. It's an English-speaking country. You can probably see a church from their front door. They've never heard the gospel. Um, so it's a very dark place. It's a place where there's a great need, um, but there is also great opportunity. Um, if you know anything about the history of Northern Ireland, you know that predominant part of their history in the last century is the Troubles. Um, it's a, a semi-military conflict between Irish Catholic nationalists and British unionists um, that went on through most of the 1900s into the early 2000s. Um, for the most part, this conflict has died down in a violent sense, though the picture there was taken the week after we returned in 2021. So there is still, still some tensions and conflict going on. But the long-standing tension there has driven really deep divides and wedges between the Catholic Irish nationalist population and the more Protestant British identifying population so that even now, 25 years after the Good Friday Agreement, 25 years after the open conflict has ended, 95% of the country is still almost completely divided between Catholic and Protestant. So the town that I live in, uh, called Lisburn, 97% Protestant or British identifying that would vote um, that direction in elections. The town 15 minutes down the road is 97% Catholic. There is no evangelical churches there. There are very, very few believers. Um, and that dynamic makes ministry there very difficult. Um, there's hard for national um, missionaries and national believers to reach into the Catholic or the, the nationalist communities because there's so much antagonism and fear and hurt from the years of conflict there. Um, even the schools, you notice on the previous slide, even the schools, 95% of the schools are either one or the other, British, Protestant, Irish, um, nationalist. Um, so while these faith identifications are 
very important and they're important distinctive for the people there. They really have very little to do with actual faith. These are more political identifications. So if I say Protestant or Catholic, in your mind just think Democrat and Republican or some other divide like that. Doesn't really have that much to do with faith. Um, less than 1% of the people that identify as Catholic actually attend a Catholic Mass more than once a month. Um, there's no real faith thing there, but it does create a great deal of barrier to the gospel, um, barrier to ministry, and adds a lot of challenges. Um, being American, frankly, does help, because I can walk in, I don't have an Irish accent, and instantly any tension or wariness or fear there is kind of taken away. And I can say things and do things that a Northern Irish Christian couldn't do, which has been a blessing, uh, but it still creates a great deal of difficulty in ministry and challenge for people from Catholic areas that accept Christ. It's sometimes very difficult for them to cross the divide and attend a Protestant evangelical church. Um, despite these challenges, um, despite the darkness that's through a lot of Northern Ireland and the culture there, um, there are really exciting things happening. God is at work in Northern Ireland in a lot of different ways. Um, and obviously throughout all of that, we see great needs and longings that only God can satisfy. Um, huge groups of the population, especially in the younger demographic that I mostly work with, um, huge groups of them have had their hearts and minds stirred over the last couple of years through COVID and all the lockdowns and isolation and questions that came up through that. And there's been a great deal more openness um, there in the past couple of years than the first time that we were there before COVID. Um, COVID wasn't great. I think you'll probably agree with me on that. But God is using it in really incredible ways to open doors for ministry, um, to allow us to get into areas and into communities that we couldn't get into before. But now that the government has generally kind of pulled out of their social programs there and they haven't really restarted, coming in even as a Christian group, even as believers, if we're doing something for their kids, they're all for it. And that gives us an avenue to share the gospel. Um, So we are humbled and thrilled to be called into the space, speak the truth of the gospel and introduce people to Jesus, and then to walk alongside young people and families and churches as they follow him. So in that uh, environment, in that culture, our role in Northern Ireland is really threefold. Um, it's bigger than this, but these are the three main areas that we work in. So the first one is discipleship, and then we are working on developing our training ministry and then our outreach ministry, reaching into those areas that are unreached with the gospel. Um, but through each of these, um, discipleship training and outreach, the end goal of all of these is making Christ known and helping the people in Northern Ireland, those who are saved, those who are unsaved, to come to know Jesus better, to love him more, and to obey him well. Um, I just realized it's on the back wall as well. That's very helpful. Um, like I said, not great with technology. Um, so we'll look at these all really quick here. So for discipleship, um, this is probably the bulk of my week-to-week -week ministry. Um, there's about 10 young Christian guys that I meet with one-on-one -on -one every other week or so um, for about an hour to two hours of discipleship. So we'll sit down, usually in a coffee shop, read the Bible together, pray together, talk about life, what God is doing, and encourage and equip them to serve God in the role and the place that he has called them and put them 
Um, so I drink a lot of coffee and tea. Um, I have to be very careful some days that I don't go over my limits there. Um, but it's a really encouraging time to come alongside these guys and to see them really take steps in their faith in following the Lord and making an impact in their communities. In addition to that, we have um, a couple of different larger groups that meet together for Bible study or discipleship groups, anywhere from 6 to 60. Um, these are a mix of Christians and non-Christians. Um, and these are more meetings that would look more like a, a evening Bible study or maybe even a youth group event. Um, where we'll have some games and some activities and some food, but then some intentional Bible teaching, some small groups, and some challenges to help them to either come to know the Lord or grow in their ability to serve and follow him. Um, we have a good group of volunteers from all over Northern Ireland that help us in these. Um, it's not just me running them. I couldn't do it on my own. Um, so we have a good group of young Christian volunteers um, that come and do that, and that's kind of the basis for the second bit of the work that we're involved in, which is training um, we have nearly 400, actually, young people that volunteer with us on a yearly basis. Um, some of them many, many weeks or many, many times. Some of them just once. Um, but out of those 400 young people, a lot of them don't have a good Christian fellowship um, that they can attend. Either there's not one local to them um, or they don't have the capacity to attend one. Um, so we see ourselves having the responsibility to steward these young people in their walks with the Lord and to help equip them and enable them to grow and to serve effectively, um, not just with BCM, with the organization that I'm with, but whatever role, whatever vocation, whatever place God calls them further on in their life. We want to take this time that we have with them and equip them to serve in a way that is effective and honoring to God. This is a kind of new thing for us there. Um, it's, a, it's an area we're developing and figuring out how to do well. Um, these young people are scattered all over the place. They're in school. They're working. Um, some of them drive. Some of them don't. Um, so figuring out how to effectively minister to and train and equip them is challenging. Um, so we, we kind of plan things and do them and see what happens. And then we, we adapt and go on from there. Uh, but at the moment, we have usually a regular training day every month or so and then try to organize seminars or kind of mini conferences a couple of times a year and invite them to and kind of teach and equip them in practical ways to follow Christ and to serve him better. The last area of our ministry is kind of our, the bulk of our summer ministry. Um, it's the bit that does the most evangelistic work, the most work in these kind of unreached Catholic background areas. Um, and these are our outreach teams. We call our Hello Life teams, which is from John chapter 10, verse 10, where Jesus says, I have come to give you life and give you life to the full. That is the message that we want to communicate to these communities and to these people that we are reaching out to. So we'll take teams of anywhere from 8 to 15 young people. Um, we will get them together for a bit of training and then a week of, of ministry in some of these towns or these communities across Northern Ireland. Um, usually they will be traditionally Catholic areas, usually unreached. Um, often areas where we might be the only Christian ministry happening there throughout the year. Um, areas where there is a lot of darkness, there is a lot of resistance to the gospel, um, there's a lot of challenges to the work there. Um, but we'll go into these areas, we'll stay residentially in a, um, anywhere, anywhere that will take us really, to be honest, um, in a church hall or in a community center, um, and then we will come together for the week and we will run kids clubs in the states or the communities around this area. Um, we'll run some community events and try to invite families along. 
We'll do street and door-to-door evangelism, service projects. We'll get into nursing homes. And then we'll spend time together as a team studying God's word and growing together and encouraging us as we do this work. Um, so we run seven, five to seven teams each summer over the course of the summer in seven different areas. Um, and then we'll run many teams throughout the rest of the year when we can get a team together. So we'll go for just a day. Um, so we'll be there the week after Easter running Easter clubs in most of these estates just for the one day. We'll go back for a weekend. We'll go run special events. Um, so not only are these Hello Life teams, these outreach teams, a really good way to share the gospel in some very dark areas, but they also provide a context for us to start building relationships and connections in these areas for more sustained, um, consistent work in these communities where building trust, building relationship is absolutely essential to the foundation of developing work there. Um, so you see there is some street outreach that we're doing in Belfast, the capital city actually, um, and then one of our kids clubs as well. Um, the last kind of part of the outreach and of the, the main bulk of the ministry there is our developing of connections in these areas. Excuse me. So tied in with the outreach teams and the other work that we're doing, my goal every month is to spend at least two or three days in a couple of the towns that we run these outreach teams in to keep maintaining those relationships, to keep pressing on doors, and to keep giving an opportunity for the gospel to grow and flourish there. Um, so where we can, we try to come alongside local churches that are also working there. A couple of these towns have maybe one small evangelical church. If we can partner with them, that's a really great blessing for them and for us. Um, but then we come into these towns and we just go and try to build relationships, get coffee with people, knock on doors, have Bible studies, have conversations with people, and try to build those relationships and those trusts in these areas that God has led us to and that God is working in. Um, most of these areas that we work in are very difficult and challenging areas. Um, they are not only unreached the gospel, but they are often quite poor um, by Western standards, at least by Northern Irish standards. Um, most of them have a great deal of drug issues. Um, the little boy Jack becomes one of our Bible clubs, and frequently he will come with a little satchel that has seven to 8,000 pounds worth of cash in it because he has just finished delivering drugs for his uncle. That's his job when he gets home from school. He goes around the state and delivers drugs, comes to our Bible study, our Bible club, hears the gospel, goes and delivers the cash to his uncle. I've never had a kid come to a ministry with $8,000 before. Um, it's kind of weird, but um, he is there. He is hearing the gospel, and then he is going home and hopefully telling his uncle what he just heard as he delivers um, drug money. Um, there's a lot of poverty. There's paramilitary activity in here. We run into issues with, with paramilitaries um, fairly frequently that kind of cause us some issues. There's never been any violence um, beyond just threats and that sort of thing, but it's something we have to be aware of. Um, suicide overdoses are a common thing in these communities as well. Um, but God is at work. He is drawing people to himself. And we press on in these areas of work in confidence of the power of the gospel to redeem them, to save people and to transform lives and family, even in the face of a great deal of resistance, a great deal of apathy, and a, a very difficult situation. Uh, we've just tied to that this past summer in the same estate 
running kids clubs. There was a, a lady across the street from our kids clubs that's given us a lot of difficulty in the past. She's called the police. She calls the police on us every time we're there. The police come and they wave at us and they drive off. Um, still calls them. But this past summer, she decided enough was enough. And she came out and created a huge fuss, interrupted our club, took me by the arm and said, this is enough. You can't be back here. People need to know what you're doing. And this lady took me by the arm to every door around the green that we were doing in this state, knocked on the door and said, they've got your kids out here. Tell them what you're telling our kids. And I got to share the gospel with every single family <laughs> in that estate because this woman didn't want us there. We had been praying for that estate for two years, that God would open the door for us to reach into some of these communities beyond just the kids to share the gospel. God chose to do that through a woman that absolutely hated the fact that we were there. Um, after that, there's two or three of the parents now, every time we have the club, that come and stand maybe 20 or 30 feet away from us as we have the club. And they just stand there to make sure that nobody bothers us. They aren't believers. They've not trusted the Lord. But they stand there because they care about what we're doing with their kids, and they allow us to do it. And those three parents hear the gospel every time we tell the kids this gospel. So there's a lot of opposition. But God doesn't care. God is at work with the gospel in these estates and these communities. Um, my wife, Rachel, supports um, a lot of this ministry that I'm doing. She's also really involved in a support group um, for women struggling with infertility um, that we run through our church, but it's been a really good outreach to women outside of our church as well, the blessing with that. Um, she's also very involved in the music scene in Northern Ireland. Um, she sings opera, teaches music, and sings with a traditional rock group, or plays piano for a traditional rock group. I can't do any of those things, which means that she has then opened the door for us to reach into a different community of people that we otherwise don't have access to. Um, so that's been a really neat ministry opportunity as well. Um, I'd like to invite you guys to pray for us. Um, a couple of requests here, um, anything from, from what I've just said. But be praying for us. There's a sign-up sheet back in the, the entrance hall. If you'd like to get our update letters and you don't, stick your email and name down there, and I'll add you to our list. Um, I won't spam you, I promise. It's a couple times a year. Um, but we'd love for you to know what we're doing so you can be praying about it. Grab a prayer card, stick it on your fridge. Be praying for us. God's at work in Northern Ireland. You guys are a part of that. It's a blessing and a joy to be um, involved in that work. Um, I could talk about that and tell you more stories for another hour. Um, I know I have until 6.30, but <laughs> we do want to get to um, God's word as well. So if you have your Bibles, if you would like to open up to Colossians chapter 1. Um, if you happen to have exactly the same Bible as me, it's on page 1361. Otherwise, it's near the back of your Bible. Um, so, I'm only look at this for just a couple of minutes here, and we're going to consider Colossians chapter 1, a bit of Colossians chapter 2, but really just one very specific thing. We want to think about Paul's ministry to the church, and we want to think about the centrality of Christ and the centrality of the gospel to Paul's ministry. And I believe this is relevant for all of us. Um, Paul is very clear 
later in Colossians and elsewhere in his writings, and really all throughout the New Testament, talking about the church, um, that each of us has been called to minister and to serve God in whatever role and capacity he's called us to, with whatever gifts he has given us, he calls us to serve. Colossians 3, verse 16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another with all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to God. So whether you're a missionary overseas in Northern Ireland or someone else, whether you're the pastor of a church, whether you're a lawyer, a doctor, an engineer, a stay-at-home mom, a shopkeeper, whatever it is, God has called you, if you have trusted him as your Savior, he has called you to ministry. He has called you to serve the people he has put you in, the church he has put you in, for his sake and for their sake. And Paul is talking about this ministry that God has given him and the centrality and the priority of the gospel to it. That everything he does is focused on Christ and on the gospel. Um, so I'm going to read Colossians chapter 1, verse 24, down to chapter 2, verse 5. Um, I'll pray, and then we'll look at this just for a couple of moments here. Paul writes, Colossians 1, verse 24, he says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding, and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with a plausible argument, for though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Pray, and then we will dig into that for a few moments. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for Christ. Um, I thank you for your plan for our salvation and redemption to bring us back into right relationship with you, Lord. Father, without that, um, we would not be here. Um, we would be without hope. Um, so we thank you for that hope that we have, Lord, and the guarantee of it in Christ dwelling in us by his Spirit. And I thank you for the ministry that you've called us each to, Lord, and whatever role or capacity or form that that takes, Lord, whatever gifts we have, whoever you've put us near, Lord, we thank you for that blessing and gift of serving you, proclaiming you to the world around us. Father, I pray it here as we look at your word, Lord, that you would speak through it, that you would open our hearts and minds to receive it, that you use us to change us to see more clearly the beauty of Christ and to become more like him. I ask this all in your son's name. Amen. So just for a bit of context here, in Colossians, Paul is writing to a church in Colossae. It's a relatively new church, obviously, because the church had only been around for, for a short number of years at this point. Um, the church has been faithful and fruitful. He thanks God in the beginning of chapter 1 for their faith in Christ, for the love that they have for others, and for the fruit that they are bearing. Um, 
But people would come into this church, people that aren't really described specifically in this, this book, but people would come into this church and begin teaching something contrary to the gospel, something that was confusing and concerning the Colossians. It doesn't tell us specifically what the teaching was. We don't know exactly what they were teaching. Um, but from the context of the book, from what we know of church history, um, most likely they were teaching something that said that you've been saved by Christ. You're a Christian, but now you need something more. You need this, this special knowledge that we have. You need this special experience. You need these other things to add to your salvation, to equip you to become a full believer or a better Christian or a better follower of Christ. This secret or special knowledge. Um, this adding to the gospel, this supplementing the work of Christ is completely opposed to what Scripture teaches and what Paul knew and experienced the gospel to be. So Paul writes this letter to the Colossians and to us through the Holy Spirit's inspiration to reground and refocus the Colossians on the truth and on the centrality and the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ through the gospel, not just for our salvation, but for all elements and aspects of our Christian life. So he begins in chapter 1, um, and he thanks, them, thanks God for their salvation, and he points out and reminds them that their salvation is through Christ alone. They've been saved through faith in Christ. There's nothing else that could save them. There's nothing else that was needed to save them. Christ's work on the cross, their faith in that through the Holy Spirit is what saves them. And then he goes on to assure them that not only were they saved by the gospel, by their belief in Christ, but that is also working in them to draw them into holiness and to make them more like Christ. They don't grow in maturity by secret knowledge or by special behavior or by following rules, by having experience, but they grow in Christ-likeness by growing in knowledge and love of Christ and living in obedient dependence on his power at work in them. So the centrality of Christ is in our salvation. Our salvation is by Christ alone. It is also in our sanctification. God is making us more like Christ through the work of the Holy Spirit, through the gospel. And we have all that we need for that in Christ. So salvation is through Christ alone. Their sanctification, their Christ-likeness, is through the power at work in them, through the gospel as well. Verses 12 and 13, Paul, Paul says, It is in fact, God the Father has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered you from the domain of darkness, and he has transferred you to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The work of the gospel is finished and complete. We have all that we need in Christ. That's Paul's message to them. You don't need extra knowledge. You don't need extra experiences. We have all that we need in Christ. It's still being worked out. The Holy Spirit is still applying it to our lives. But God has provided and accomplished all that needs to be done to live for Christ in fellowship with God. And then in the last bit there, 15, down to verse 23 in Colossians chapter 1, he concludes that, that prayer for their growth, a reminder of the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives, with one of the most glorious proclamations of the majesty, the worthiness, and the power of Christ, talking about his rule and dominion, his authority, his power in creating the world, and his ownership over all they had created, and then his redemptive work in the lives of his children. His point through the whole book, really through all of his letters for Paul, is to show us that in Christ we have been given all that we need, that Christ alone provides the way of salvation. 
but also in Christ we have all the riches and resources that we need to live for him and to grow in holiness and joy. Now, he doesn't dismiss our responsibility. This is not a you've accepted Christ, you just sit back and let the Holy Spirit do stuff and make you like Christ. We participate in this. We are called to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to, to live in a way that is pleasing to him. We participate in this through faith, through being obedient and desiring and seeking after Christ. But the power to accomplish this is in us through Christ already. At the end of chapter 1, in verse 23, verse 24, Paul changes tone from talking about the Colossians and what God is doing in their life to shift to talking about the centrality of the gospel and of Christ to his ministry and to the ministry that we are all called to. And that's the bit I want to focus on here. Just two quick points. Paul assures them that what he proclaims and what he teaches from the first time he met them to now is Christ. His message and his motivation both center on Christ and the gospel. And he elaborates on his confidence that in the gospel, in Christ, we have all we need to live and to grow and to serve. So as we look through these verses, I want to encourage you to think and consider and reflect on the gospel and on Christ and how they are central to your life or to the ministry that God has called you to, whatever that may be. Um, what place does Christ take in the way that you think about the world around you, the way you interact with the people that God has placed you among? Does Christ inform and direct your thoughts, your relationships, your reactions to things? Does the truth and the power of the gospel inform what and how you communicate and live? So first of all, Paul makes crystal clear what the message he proclaims consists of especially speaking to the church, preaching and speaking to those who are already in the kingdom of God. It says in verse 24, he says, He rejoices in my suffering, filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given me for you. This is the message that he communicates, to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. In all his teaching, in all his arguing, in all his debating, in all his evangelism, throughout all of Asia Minor, on his missionary journeys, the cities and towns of the Roman world, whether it's speaking to Jews, or to Gentiles, to believers, to non-believers, Paul's central core message was always focused solely on Christ. This is not just when he's preaching the gospel to people that don't know Christ. Obviously, we need to preach Christ and him crucified to them, but just as much when speaking to the churches and to believers. Paul believed, and Scripture shows us, that Christ is not just the source of our salvation, but in fact, through his presence and power at work in us through the Spirit, Christ is also the means of our sanctification. It is what God uses to help us to grow and to mature as believers. Paul's point here is that the Colossians and us have all that we need to fully experience the riches of our salvation. We don't need anything apart from Christ. He dwells in us, and he is, work, is at work in us through his Spirit. 
It doesn't matter what their background is, whether they were Jews, whether they're Gentiles, whether they're rich, whether they're poor. It doesn't matter what their education or their age. The message of the gospel that Christ proclaims is Christ in you, the hope of glory. All of the riches and the power and the wonder of Christ that he describes there earlier in Colossians that we read all throughout the books of Scripture, all of that is living and working and dwelling within us. What Paul wants the church to understand is that, yes, Christ saves us, but Christ is living in you and empowering you and equipping you to follow him and to live for him. So the message that he proclaims and the message that ought to be on our lips as we minister to others in the body of Christ, as we engage with those around us who do not yet know the Lord, the message that we proclaim is Christ in us, the hope of glory. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he says, the message I proclaim is Christ crucified, because it is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Paul's confidence is in the gospel, that it has the power not only to provide salvation, as we know and believe, but the gospel also is what gives us the power and ability to be mature in Christ. So he preaches Christ and him crucified, the saved to the unsaved. And for me, like as I serve in Northern Ireland, as I minister in coffee shops and estates, churches, and all these things, this is something I need to constantly refresh and remind myself of. Um, just as much when I'm sitting with young people in a coffee shop who love the Lord, who are eager to learn and to grow in their faith, what I want to be communicating to them is Christ. I want them to see Christ more clearly, to understand the gospel more deeply, and to love God more, because that is the way that they grow and mature and are more effective in serving and honoring God. But just as much when I'm knocking on doors, when I'm going around the states, talking to people that have no idea what the gospel is, what they need to hear is Christ crucified and come to see and know and love Christ through the gospel. Not only do I need to be reminded of these truths, reminded of the power that they have to do the work of salvation, but it also reminds me of the utter inability of any other method, any other message, any other tactic or means to be effective in transforming lives. I can be the most eloquent speaker. I can plan the most incredible programs. I can build the best relationships. If I'm not preaching Christ and him crucified, nothing I do has any power to accomplish anything in their lives. Now, this is simple. Paul's message in ministry is simple. I preach Christ crucified. Him we proclaim. But it's not easy. Paul is very clear. He says, I rejoice in my sufferings. I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Verse 29, he says, I'm toiling, struggling for this. How great a struggle I have for you. In chapter 2, verse 1, it's hard work. Paul calls it toil and difficulty and struggling because we have to work to understand the gospel ourselves, to draw close to Christ ourselves. We need to study scriptures to know how we can see Christ and the gospel worked out and displayed through all of it so we can proclaim all of scripture, the word of God be fully known, but through all that, pointing people to Christ. Paul understood that Jesus was the fulfillment of all of scripture and that in him and him alone could be found the riches of real, abundant life. And this informed both what he communicated 
and why he communicated it. So really quickly here, we're going to look at Paul's motivation. Why is he willing to struggle, to endure the afflictions of Christ, to toil, to struggle, and suffer in this work? Why do this? Why put all this work and this effort in um, for so little physical, earthly reward? Now, there's a lot of reasons for this, and he lists them in other, other epistles that he writes. But the one that he speaks of here, most clearly, most central to this, he labors and he strives in his preaching and his teaching and his sharing of Christ because he desires for the church to grow in maturity. And he desires for the church to grow in knowledge of Christ and assurance of God's goodness and faithfulness to them. And he recognizes that all of this can be found in Christ, in the gospel. In chapter 2, verse 2 and 3, he says that his desire for them is that they be encouraged, to be knit together in love, and to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding. All of that which is found in Christ, because in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So as he thinks about the people that God has put around, the people that God has called him to, that is his motivation, that they would be encouraged in their following of Christ, that they would be unified with each other and with God, that they would have full assurance of all of the riches of their salvation and that they would grow in maturity, that they would grow in Christ-likeness. And that is why he preaches, not just because he desires these things for people, but because he believes that the gospel and the message of Christ has the power to accomplish them. The same is true for us. What is our motivation for how we interact with the people around us, in church, in our jobs, in our families, the interactions and service and ministry that we have for the people that God has put us among? Is our desire for their encouragement, for greater unity, that they would know God better, that they would be more deeply assured of what God has done for them and the truths of who they are in Christ, and that they would grow in maturity? If that is your desire for your brothers and sisters here at church, for your coworkers, for your family members, if that is your desire, then Paul's challenge here is preach Christ to them. Show them Christ. Are these things what you desire for yourself? Do you want to be encouraged in your walk with the Lord? Do you want to be more unified with your brothers and sisters, with your Father? Do you want to be assured of the riches of God's love to you in the gospel? Do you want to grow in maturity in Christ-likeness? Paul's message and encouragement to us here is to look to Christ. Peer deeply into the gospel and see throughout all of Scripture the riches of the beauty and glory of Christ, and let it transform your thinking and desires and your loves as you submit to it. Paul says it's hard work. Whether we're doing it for others or we're doing it for ourselves, it's toil, it's struggle. We fight against our sin, we fight against our apathy, we fight against the pressures of the world around us. It's hard work. But it's what we're called to do, and because of the power of the Spirit working within us, it will accomplish its work in us and in the lives of those around us. So the world around us, from Lisbon to Northern Ireland, to here in Phillipsburg, to the ends of the earth, they need Christ. They need to hear Christ. The families in Downpatrick that don't even know what the Bible is, they need to hear about Christ. Your neighbors need to hear about Christ. You and I have trusted Christ as our Savior, we need Christ and to hear about Christ as well. 
is in him, freely given, is not just our rescue from sin, but in Christ is all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He is the source of our redemption and our reconciliation. He is the one who restores our relationship with God, and he is the source of our growth. He is the giver of joy, and he is the guarantee of our hope. Ministry, no matter what the context is, no matter what that looks like for you, ministry is hard. It's hard for Paul. It's hard for me. It's hard for you. It takes perseverance. It will mean some degree of suffering when we do it faithfully. Ministry is also simple. Christ we proclaim, and we keep on proclaiming until he comes. Not in our own strength, but as Paul says, For this I toil, struggling with all of his energy, but he powerfully works within me. As we serve our brothers and sisters, the world around us, and preach the gospel to ourselves. Our message is Christ. Our motivation is that others would grow in Christ-likeness. They would come to know him. That we would give God the glory that he deserves. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you for the gospel. I thank you that it is powerful to save, that it can rescue us from our rebellion, can rescue us from our brokenness, Father, and it can redeem and can restore. Lord, that it gives us not just a right relationship with God, but it gives us new life, new life to be lived every day. Father, I pray that we would cling close to Christ, that we would run to him, that we would preach the gospel to ourselves every day because it has the power to change, to transform and to grow us into Christ-likeness. Father, I pray that we would do this for ourselves, and that we would have the desire to do it for those you have put in our lives, to serve and to love. I thank you for the work that you are doing here in Phillipsburg, here at Fellowship Church, and in Northern Ireland and around the world. And thank you for the opportunity we have to be a part of that. Father, I thank you for your Son, for all the glory and beauty and wonder and majesty that we can observe and joy and praise, Lord, and that dwells within us even now. Amen.